Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 76. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and this week we bring you a new spin on an old fairy tale in the form of The Rabbit Catcher of Kingdom Come by Kelly Wells. Kelly is the author of a collection of short fiction, Compression Scars, winner of the Flannery O'Connor Award and two novels, Skin and Fat Girl and Terrestrial, a Patterson Prize finalist. She's the recipient of a Rona Jeff Foundation Writers Award and the GLCA New Writers Award for Fiction. Rabbit Catcher of Kingdom Come was chosen by Kevin Brockmeyer for inclusion in the 2010 Best American Fantasy Anthology. She teaches in the MFA programs at the University of Alabama and Pacific University. You can find her online via the links in the show notes. Your narrator for the story is Martin Rito. Martin is an educator, writer, and musician. He's worked in an eclectic variety of fields, including 18 years as a technical writer and software developer, 16 years as a teacher of creative writing, computer science and business communication, and shorter stints as a symphony musician and audiobook narrator. He has published short fiction and two collections of his poetry. So here we have it, The Rabbit Catcher of Kingdom Come, by Kelly Wells. One sudden spring, when trees and flowers, bamboozled by warmth, began budding in January, the prematurely honeyed air flattened, refusing to chill again until late December, the town of Kingdom Come, Kansas, was beset by a plague of black-tailed jackrabbits that were not only many, but jumbo. Bigger than Great Danes they were, gargantuan rabbits, suspiciously well-fed, slavering over the zoysia, plump middles heaving, back feet long and brawny as a sailor's forearm, and ears you could fan a fainting princess with. 
and not at all timid, never darting under privet or disappearing behind fences at the last minute, but glaring tauntingly at cats and hobbled crones, whom the town feared would be dragged away to an unspeakable end in the riparian thickets, whence these strapping rabbits multiplied, their numbers seeming to double each week. They licked their paws and stroked their ears and whiskers while leveling a menacing eye and leering toothily at any passer-by bold enough to look them in their flea-bitten mugs. They stood upon their whopping hoppers and waggled their ears as though receiving a communique from Jackrabbit HQ, the air crackling with animal electricity, and then they charged a neighbor's chihuahua. The javelin of their ears at a determined tilt, and the runt mutt would leap with a shriek through its doggy door. They hopped defiantly into busy intersections, and station wagons and pickup trucks, afraid a collision with one of these sturdy lagomorphs would surely cause their vehicles to crumple like beer cans against an obdurate forehead, hit one another and rolled in ditches instead, coming to rest tires up among the cattails. At night the rabbits drummed their feet so rhythmically the earth seemed to growl, and the sleepless citizens of kingdom come locked and relocked their doors and windows until the thumping ceased at sunrise. The town was in a pickle, had a big-eared crisis on its hands, fast-multiplying pestilence, cotton-tilled epizootic, and, well, it feared for its safety and solitude. Which is why, when the man in the party-colored coat appeared and claimed he could, for a nominal one-time fee, rid the town of this nuisance forever, the drowsy burghers fell gratefully at his feet. He pulled from his pied pocket the largest carrot anyone had ever seen. Even Farmer Bower, known county-wide for his prize-winning cucumbers the size of hockey sticks and potatoes that frequently resembled past presidents, was agog. And from this carrot, the man in the colorful coat whittled a fife, whose music the town was deaf to, though dogs howled and whimpered and shimmied under sofas when he blew. This man, let us hereafter refer to him as Herr Pfeiffer, testing the irresistible pitch of the pipe, played a casual tune one night, strolling in the unseasonable and glistering warmth of the moonlight, and the ritual rumbling was replaced with a high-pitched keening that caused people to fill their kitchen sinks, eject ice from metal trays, and immerse their throbbing noodles in ice water. Next day, Herr Pfeiffer began to silently ululate in earnest, and the wild-eyed rabbits were tugged tail-first toward where he stood piping in the gazebo. A pyramid of resentful rabbits began to wriggle in front of him, the ground scarred with claw marks as they tried to resist the sonorous magnetism of Herr Pfeiffer's Hassen song. This bushel of black-tailed jackrabbits writhed and kicked, heaped higher than a haystack. But when Herr Pfeiffer lowered his fife, they all went limp and began quietly to snore. The people of Kingdom Come couldn't bring themselves to witness the rumpus through locked windows and sliding glass doors, but they cautiously parted their drapes when the air gently thundered with the sound of sleeping rabbits, a welcome estivation they hoped would last. 
After a week, people began to emerge from their houses, and children stole away at night to secretly stroke the silken feet of the rabbits as they slumbered. And occasionally one would snort and turn on its side, and below it an ear or a paw would stir to life and wave weakly, yellow teeth chomping with dreams. And the children would gasp and back away until the mound again snuffled in unison. Some rabbits slept with their eyes open, and beneath a full moon their eyeshine made the town blush, bathed it in a pink glow that stuck to the skin, causing adolescent boys, fearful of the hell they'd have to pay if they were ever spotted sporting girly hues, to stay indoors. They ate their meat extra well done, never mind that it shrank to shoe leather, and they never let their tongue dart from its cave, even when Dr. Hildebrand whacked a depressor at them and told them to open wide. No pink, no how. The town council met to decide what was to be done with this big-as-a-boat-footed vermin now hypnotized in an unsightly jumble of tails and whiskers and ears and feet in the middle of town. Would the rabbits remain indefinitely under Herr Pfeiffer's spell and snore themselves senseless, dwindle to bone? And how long might that take? And were the townsfolk really obliged to pay the piper? He hadn't, after all, actually emancipated the town from its trammels. No siree bobcat. It only bewitched it into unconsciousness, and who knew how long that would hold? Surely the hypnotized rabbits would soon rouse from their stupor, perhaps mad with a ravenous hunger, and who could say what might be on the menu? Herr Pfeiffer, sitting quietly at the back as the town's alarm rose in pitch, stood and asked to be recognized. His colorful coat was bejeweled with light kindled by the flickering fluorescence of the town hall, and seemed to swarm with diamond-backed beetles. "'Esteemed elders and good people of kingdom come,' began Herr Pfeiffer. "'I am not in the business of slaughtering God's creatures, however vexatious their presence. "'I corral and subdue, I enchant. "'I have done as you asked. "'No longer does the rumble of your bane's feet keep you sleepless at night. "'But it is not for me to decide the ultimate fate of living things.' Would you, dear brethren, whose knees audibly knock in the presence of God, not agree? Here, Herr Pfeiffer smoothed his hands along his coat, and light glittered across the sunken cheeks of his anguished auditors. But if you insist, if you wish, in no uncertain terms, that these scapegraces be mortally dispatched, I am indeed able to provide this service. However... The cost of extermination is a good deal more dear. In addition to the tender I will ask you to part with, you must be prepared to open your ears to a sound like no other. It is a sound of suffering, and will infect your flesh like a virus, thickening your blood, burrowing in your most vital organs. It will become the caries that corrode the teeth that wake you with aching at night, the congested vessels of the eyes red with grief, the creeping spots on skin gone slack as a turkey's wattle with time. It is a fevered howling that will ring in your heart for the rest of your days and sound to you as though the earth's soul is being throttled. You must ask yourselves, can your hearts, stalwart and true as you may believe them to be, afford it? The town council asked Herr Pfeiffer if he would kindly step out so that they might consider the merit of his, uh, 
intriguing proposal. He tapped his heels and bowed, and a bedazzling train of light followed him as he took his leave. Widow Winkler said, if you asked her, relying on her pipe for a second time would be throwing good spinach after bad, and she, for one, hadn't a plug nickel to throw in any direction. Widow Winkler lived from her departed husband's paltry pension. He'd been an itinerant messiah, headlining in passion plays across the state. Seasonal work, but he was the best Christ in Kansas, could suffer and forgive at the drop of a hat, and so was handsomely compensated for each performance. But the messiahs had only recently unionized and bargained for benefits when Herr Winkler died on the job on the cross. He'd been devoted to his craft and felt he'd understand Christ's motivation better if just once he could be properly staked. As misfortune would have it, Herr Winkler was a bleeder, heretofore unbeknownst. Retirement funds had yet to accrue, and life insurance, the whole notion of which was complicated by all those nightly resurrections, matinees on Sunday, had been dismissed on principle. So the other Christs of Kansas, who also yearned to bleed believably, donated a portion of their income to create a modest annuity for Wilhelmina Winkler, surviving spouse of Berthold Winkler, voted greatest Jesus since Jesus at their annual potluck and most likely to raise the dead. Mayor Finsterwalder suggested they stipulate payment be remitted only after this plague was stamped out, the rabbits a fading chapter in the town's otherwise placid history. But, asked Constable Schutzmann, what about the sound of suffering Herr Pfeiffer warned against? A brutal music, that would certainly be. Constable Schutzmann, though a by-the-book beetle in every other regard, kept at home a three-legged Martin he'd found wounded near his well, and coddled back to health and trained to waltz, teaching her to hop rhythmically on one foot, one, two, three, one, two, three, and clearly he nursed a secret affection for all velvety creatures, however unsettling their snarl, however monstrous their feet. Ah, <laughs> spat Farmer Bower, we're no strangers to suffering. We all know well the shriek of a hog, what has gotten downwind of his fate, do we not? Surely we'll not allow the brief bellowing of animal torment to stand in the way of our happiness. With this, a snort flew from his bulbish nozzle, his woolly mustache shivered like the legs of a centipede, and appeared as though it might scuttle off and leave his newly naked lip to fend for itself, and he folded sun-leathered arms across the bulging barrel of his chest. "'These rabbits have it coming,' he boomed, and so it was decided, though there was still some disagreement among the more pinch-fisted skinflints among them, over the exact monetary value of such a service, Herr Pfeiffer would be retained and asked to exterminate the waggle-eared menace and the feet they hopped in on. Farmer Bauer reluctantly plunked gold pieces into Herr Pfeiffer's eager mitts, the only form of lucre he'd accept. Paper currency, he said, so easily a stiff wind's hostage said the rest would be preferred once services were rendered, and Herr Pfeiffer again clicked his heels and bowed solemnly, then backed away, until he found himself in sunlight, and he turned and strode forward, showily pumping his arm in the air like a drum major, marching to music he had yet to make.
His coat exploded kaleidoscopically in the light, spangling the air, throwing disks of color everywhere, everywhere, and a train of jewels blazed brightly behind him. He turned his head once and grinned over his shoulder, and his unusually long eyelashes fluttered gracefully in a beckoning manner, like the undulating fingers of a sea anemone. Widow Winkler, eyes like boiled eggs, yelped and slapped at the beetles of light that scurried along her arms, and she grabbed the shoulder of Frau Kinderbein and said, I see your Ermelinda floating in the candy-colored light, trailing close behind him. You must keep her near as a shadow. And Frau Kinderbein, whose marigolds had suffered more than once at the paws of Widow Winkler's stuffling mutt, Shats, and whose daughter sometimes suffered from night terrors brought on by the manic midnight twittering of the widow's canary petunia, shrugged off the crone's craggy hand, sniffed and stormed off, her bosom raised to a bumptious altitude. The rest of the frazzled citizenry of Kingdom Come headed straight home, gathered bread and jam and candles enough for a week, plugged their ears with dollops of wax, and stowed their families safely away in root cellars. Let the rabbit extraction commence. The townspeople waited in dimness, held their heads in their hands and tried not to listen, silently played cards, and whittled vague shapes from turnips, ate pickled okra and poisonberry preserves, fed their mewling cats condensed milk, taught their dogs who whined barometrically and argued with their feet to play dead. After they'd been underground for three days, they began to feel like grubs or tubers, like the least shrew, smallest mammal in Kansas. They felt puny and too comfortable in darkness, so the close, dank quarters began to shrink, and the townspeople thought, surely the pox has been antidoted by now. It is worth remarking that too often it is impatience or boredom that persuades us to step foot into the lion's yawning maw. With the passing of time comes accidental daring. But the minute our britches catch on the barb of an incisor, we awaken to the delusion, turn tail, and gallop in the direction of our sensible cowardice. So it was in kingdom come on this the day that would later and forever demand atonement. Just as parents and grandparents, restless offspring and orphaned cousins, filed toward the steps, tunneling a pinky into an ear to free it from silence, preparing to periscope their heads above ground for confirmation that the plague had been piped into oblivion, suddenly family cats tossed back their mangy heads and began to bay like wolves beneath a swollen moon. The dogs, nobody's dupe, could see that such behavior was a sign the world was soon to end, soon to crumble like a day-old biscuit beneath the crack of doom, and they tried to outwit the apocalypse by falling stiffly onto their sides. Thud! Good dog! Good dead dog! Big-fisted toddlers clutched wooden alphabet blocks so tightly their skin gave and their hands bled, as if they'd been bitten by feral words in the act of forming. To this day, a ghostly branding on the palms of Kansas children remains faintly visible, even beneath the impetigo that scabs the skin in spring. However, the letters change each year. Capital H, one year, lowercase e, the next, then a faint L. Help? Hell? Hello? He lives? 
as though their hands were trying to tell them something, weeder them a bulletin from the world beyond hands, perhaps warn snailishly of the coming of evil, or the coming of good, equally disruptive, who can say? And so families return to their bunkers, huddled together, while hamsters and mice and gerbils all ran themselves ragged on squeaking wheels, nearly reduced themselves to a rundle of butter, and awaited the all-clear of daylight that rewards the night shift, vampires and owls and astronomers and fireflies, with sunny and dreamless sleep. When settled on cots and benches, the final hand of hearts dealt, the townspeople too heard the sound, felt it in the roots of their teeth as it increased in pitch and volume, a concatenated shriek so piercing, sharp as an awl, that eardrums shattered like crystal beneath the pressure of a tenor shrilly trilling a lofted note, and blood trickled from their ears, but still they could hear. Children began to hiccup and whimper, and parents held damp tea towels to their paling cheeks, and then they found themselves on their feet, standing without meaning to, stumbling dreamily, wakeful somnambulists, pulled forward, up the steps into the afternoon. They squinted against the dazzle of day, into the sound that seemed to empty their hearts of blood, sapped them of all volition, into the soul-curdling caterwaul that sounded to the pious folk of kingdom come as though God himself were being lashed, the world's skin peeling from muscle, flesh sheared from bone, the sound of gore dripping, dripping, ichor thinning to a rivulet, the hollow thump-thump of life on the ebb. They walked, eyes at half-mast, arms a-dangle, limp as slain geese, and they stopped when they reached the river, where their magnetized eyes remained riveted and unblinking, burning with sight, as one bedeviled rabbit after another pitched itself, screaming off the banks and into the rushing water, paws peddling for purchase in the air, Bodies dashed against rocks, necks snapped by the force of the current that churned with the spring thaw, and the rabbit's quivering ectoplasm, translucent but pink as a tongue, rose slowly into the air like gluey bubbles. Gelatinous vapor wafted overhead, clouding the sky with an oily glow, then burst the town blanketed in ooze, a viscous rain. The rosy slime of a slaughtered soul. Off in the distance, beneath the sun's mid-afternoon glare, the spellbound burghers saw a winkling brilliance on the shoals, like a mirror splashed with light, and when their eyes adapted to the brightness, they could make out Herr Pfeiffer's pipe raised in the air, the man at the other end reminding them of Dr. Jekyll guzzling his fateful elixir straight from the alembic tip to his lips. The townspeople frantically swapped the goo of extermination from their limbs, and all at once children and dogs fell to the ground, eyeballs shuddering beneath the lids as if recording a seismic shift, as if a twitch with a shattering dream, which is how they would later think of it, the wickedest dream they could ever recall having, an experience not of God's still-watered, green-pastured, and betuliped kingdom, a dream that beggared even the most tormented imagination, 
and parrots open their mouths and try to swallow the sound, gulp it down and drown it in their gullets, choking on air polluted with suffering. This malignant yawp, it cannot properly be described. It herald to the quick the halting spirits of the sorrowful citizens of Kingdom Come, Kansas, who never again fished in the river, who never again whittled a carrot, waltzed in the moonlight, nursed a wounded animal, whose weddings thereafter were somber as wakes, who never again heard the sound of children singing or weeping or calling their dogs, though the taproot buried beneath these burgeoning never-agains is yet to be revealed, all in good time. The river boiled with the bodies of rabbits. The true name of the piper, they later discovered, was Herr Dr. Dr. Edelhans Hassenfanger, once world-renowned musicologist and zoologist, of the Hameln Hassenfangers, a name that mysteriously appeared one day on the town registry in a variegated ink that bled across the thatched fibers of the parchment in such a way as to make it seem botanical. Rhizomes creeping in all directions, a name like that of that other notorious subterranean scoundrel, never uttered in polite company. It cannot be said that Kingdom Come returned to normal once the rabbits had rattled their last jack-rabbity breath, had met their misguided maker. But the town fell in step again with its former rhythm, and the townsfolk choused themselves into believing they surmounted the worst of their tribulations. Until until that day when house-dogs whose crystal gazers began burrowing under Davenport's, Mayor Finsterwalder's Irish wolfhound Hedwig, schlepping his prized Biedermeyer David on her back from the parlor into the dining-room as she tried to creep toward invisibility, and cats hid in haylofts where they let mice scurry past them unpawed. The mice were not especially grateful for the amnesty because, well, mice are as fond of routine as the next rodent. Lassitude caused them to thin nearly to extinction, for they did not feel they could crumb-gather or invade the corn-rick in good conscience with no claws snapping at their tails to give them fleet-footed purpose. On that day, Herr Pfeiffer appeared again at a council meeting to settle unsettled accounts. As he strode into the hall in his light-spangled mantle, seeming for all the world like a spreading fire, the townspeople felt the heat on their cheeks and parted to let this conflagration pass, stepping wide for fear they too might combust. Herr Pfeiffer asked to be recognized, and Brother Angsthase yielded the lectern and stepped down from the dais. Later, when the town would attempt to reconstruct Herr Pfeiffer's appearance so that they might offer a bounty for his capture, they would each recollect the features of his face differently, would in fact reconstruct him in their own image. Gutless god wannabes, all of us, face round as a skillet with eyes like dull stones, aquiline nose above fat lips garish as poppies, teeth blue-green as oxidized copper and a monkish baldness, and they'd forget the mesmerism of his motley coat and the bewitching pitch of his piping. "'Your town has been purged of its pestilence,' said Herr Pfeiffer, "'and I have returned to collect my due. 
If you would be so good as to remit my quittance and square the score, I will gladly quit you and be on my way. He bowed and tossed his hat to the mayor. Each alderman searched the bewildered eyes of the next for some guidance, some cue, and the hat passed quickly from hand to hand. Herr Pfeiffer stepped down and returned to the center aisle, and the hat came round to him, sagging with booty. He smiled, clicked his heels, glanced inside the hat, then a lupine grimace darkened his face. When council members recounted this later, they would say he bared blinding teeth that glistened like daggers, and his eyes yellowed with animal rage. But he said nothing, and his silence rang inside them like a clapper and a bell, making their bones hum and their hearts skip, their livers clang. Their souls clamored to be free of that four-flushing flesh that would soon turn to dust and settle on armoires and sconces, only to be swept into the bin with yesterday's rubbish, sorriest of sorry fates. Pragmatic of fickle souls always look for an escape hatch when the end inches closer. Inside the hat were candy wrappers, pencils, plugged nickels, balls of lint, marbles, four-penny nails, assorted flints, last week's raffle tickets, willow buds, but nary a gemstone or drop of gold, a hatful of the nothing that nothing carries in its pocket. No one drew a breath or twitched so much as a toe. See here, stammered Mayor Finsterwalder at last. The rabbits have gone, there's no arguing that, but so too has our felicity, the sweet sanctity we once enjoyed, fled, owing in no small measure to that, that diabolical song we cannot shake from our ears, a lamentation we strongly suspect is infernal in origin, and he who... Pays the devil will be in debt for all eternity, sputtered the mayor, miscalculating the breath necessary to propel reticent indignation, the last words scarcely a whisper. A chilly stillness settled again on the room, inside of which Herr Pipefer's coat seemed to blaze anew, and the fire flashed in the shrinking pupils of the onlookers, their irises emptying of color, welling up with heat. And what if, asked Herr Pipefer with a mouth that did not move, it was God who murdered the scourge. Isn't extermination always God's purview, his bailiwick, prerogative, his reason for being? What if it is God to whom you owe your fitful sleep? He is surely indemnified, and you can be certain he will collect. A half-grin propped up one side of his mouth. You cannot outrun the constable, dear Thimble Riggers, cannot stiff the piper for long. Consider yourself in arrears. Herr Pfeiffer blazed out of the room, and each person he passed fell to his knees and grasped the trailing smoke, fingering the air for forgiveness. A week passed, and there was no further peep from the piper. The alderman's ears felt mauled by Herr Pfeiffer's last clapper-clawing, so no one uttered a word about the threats the town fervently hoped were idle as disrepair, indolent as a capsized velocipede with a badly bent wheel. 
those kingdom covers secretly given to occult imaginings in the yearning of privacy of long and moonless nights, wished he'd been spirited away by a vigorous wind to an inhospitable continent, remote as the stars, and prayed that a technicolored coat fueled by a grudge was not a reliable means of conveyance. Even the most stubborn mortal funk is tamed by time, taught to bear up under the yoke of mortality like all gods' oxen, so after a fortnight the people dared to think that perhaps Herr Pfeiffer's bite fell short of his bellow, and they allowed themselves at last to sink like the dead into the soft ticking of their mattresses at night. So dog-weary were the sleep-deprived brethren of kingdom come Kansas that no bodies stirred from their stupor when the animals began to pace. Not even the yowling and hissing, the stamping of hoofs could rouse the snorting sleepers from this deliciously leaden embrace of Morpheus, whose tenderness they'd sought in vain, like mooning schoolgirls, for months. It is natural to grope for metaphor, sentiment twice removed in moments of guarded contentment. To say simply the town at last slept soundly is, for those who set store by the sorcery of words, to further court the endless ills that flesh is heir to. Calamity is warded off by being eternally anticipated. The devil, too. Tranquility, as any comfortable basset hound can tell you, must always dissemble, masquerade as irreversible woe, lest it jinx its own wobble-wheeled future. Lunita Betelheim, who didn't believe in shouldering debt, sobbed for an hour every afternoon promptly at three o'clock to pay down the dejection we come into the world owing and to invest in a retirement free of all but the most trifling miseries. She believed five months of sobbing immunized her against the death of a loved one, three weeks for a prolonged illness, two months unrequited adoration, one month garden variety objection, such were Lunita's mathematics of preventative mourning. But even the artful dodge of language or gesture, little more, let us be frank, than a parlor trick, cannot save us in the end. And this is how God can be certain he is God. His ledger domain relies less on the distance of sense than the intimacy of sound. His is a thundering melody of wrath and repentance, which is to say a song understood by all. The song we arrive in our bodies bleating, and so it was that the good and decent people of Kingdom Come Kansas came to doubt the inoculating power of piety. Fat lot of good their devotion had done them. See if it isn't so. In Kingdom Come there was a girl, who shall henceforth be referred to as... Wall, will, woe, wallow, willow, lithe as a willow himmelfarb, a child born big as a camel's hump, big as a fable, so big she broke the stork's bill, delaying delivery of other infants, which caused the mothers to hiss at her and rub their beleaguered loins when they passed her, wombs whose phantom pains of labor persisted for years, and caused the women to cry out each day at the stroke of their child's birth. In fact, this is how the town, who'd always mistrusted the tilt of the sun, and whose body's collective electricity caused clocks and watches to spin so fast, feared they'd lived their whole lives in less than a day, began to tell time. Gisela Schadenfrau, 11 a.m., Malvina. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mark Wart, shortly before supper in the evening, Rapunzel Peabody and Alfreda Kinderbein a minute to midnight. And with each passing year, the blue expanse between Willow and the outer heavens grew smaller. The community waited for the day she'd exchange a chaplet of clover for that of clouds. In that year of the piper, Willow was ten years old, but could already stare the stateliest stallion in the eye, though she generally steered wide of livestock for fear they might claim her as one of their own. And on that particular night, the night of the stony sleep, Willow, like all the children of kingdom come, felt herself rise from her bed and float into the midnight air. Elfrida and Rapunzel synchronized howls peeling behind her, and it was such a lovely and alien sensation, this weightlessness, that she felt no fear, thought God had come to rescue her at last, free her from the anvil of her earthly form, slip that ponderous noose from her neck. Once outside her house, with no ceiling to stymie her, Willow thought she'd drift quickly toward Canicula, and, fond admirer that she was of both dogs and remote locales, she suffered no regret. But then she thought of her brother Ogden, imagined him grounded at home with only her parents for company, and she felt her soul kedged across the prairie, her body an anchor. Her feet began to drag, then her knees, her belly, her chin, until she found herself face down in buffalo grass. She rolled on her back and saw animal eyes blinking around her. She wished she could muster fear, but she knew buzzards and badgers, coyotes and foxes, even the occasional mountain lion and vagrant bear would scatter once they could see she was no tidy morsel. Two autumns ago, a black bear had been spotted on a bitter night, curled at the feet of the statue of Mendelssohn Paddletrap, who in 1883 invented the tornado harness, a honking contraption that could lasso a twister, roped the energy around the ankles, and with that force momentarily tamed, he would loose it again upon the ground to conjure his heart's fondest longing, a coop full of the most 
scantily pranked bantams, feathered to the nines, you could ever hope to fancy, and that laid not only the best-tasting eggs this side of capital P paradise, but produced chicken milk to boot, which, it turns out, is ambrosia to bears, more enticing than all the honey in bear heaven. Above Willow, children wafted in the air with unspeakable grace, fluid as eels. But then the moon illumined their bodies, and in their night clothes they reminded her of the seeds of a milkweed parachuting toward fertilization. Everything is more something else than itself, thought Willow. Willow, who usually felt fettered by history, always a short man's story by her measure, thought then about Amelia Earhart. Corn-fed Kansas girl like her, Mealy, her sister called her, who constructed a track on her father's tool shed, greased it with lard, drove a wooden box off the ledge, hung suspended in time and space like a lost planet, fell to the earth and said, One day I'll disappear in the clouds, Pidge. You watch. Everyone who grows up in Kansas has a yen to be airborne sooner or later, if only to glimpse where God hides his unimaginable form, that fat carcass. Many a prairie Kansan, landlocked and starved for altitude and love, tall trees and tender music, has had a bone to pick with Herr Doctor Doctor G O double crucifix. Willow thought it was not tragic, but a dream fulfilled that Amelia Earhart lifted into the sky one day and never returned. Willow Earhart, thought Willow, air, the element in which her empty heart naturally thrived. Then she thought this, it's always thin women who disappear. And suddenly there was Ogden swimming in the sky overhead, clutching the feet of a sleeping girl who bobbed in the air in front of him, Ermelinda Kinderbein, Ogden who prayed at the foot of Willow's bed and smuggled into her room at night ginger snaps and pepper nuts her mother hid from her. Ogden! Augie! she called. He waved to her with his feet. So Willow, who now felt herself more weighted with flesh than ever, picked herself up and followed the floating children deeper into the night. Willow followed them until her feet ached, and she was sure they had reached what her parents called the ragged edge of Christendom, beyond the windbreak planted to halt the raging dust that, back in the day, had stormed the lungs of every breathing thing. Beyond the forest she was warned never to trespass, lest she awaken the wild, omnivorous, one-eared cows that were afraid of mirrors and goats, but who chewed children like grass, and spit up baskets woven from hair and bones and teeth. To a clearing in the trees, and there the children began to flutter to the ground, lit by the throbbing moon, looking like blank slips of paper. Now Willow could hear the rhythmic croaking of the pipe that sounded like the whirring of June cicadas as they slid from their skins. She walked through the sleepy children lying on the ground, careful not to step on their outstretched hands, and searched them for her brother, Augie with his nose dusted with freckles and his button mouth that mumbled in sleep. She pulled up short when she saw dagger-toed boots, betasseled at the knee, gleaming with lanolin and lamp-black, tapping the ground, and there, standing among the slumbering kindergarten, was Herr Pfeiffer, who held in his hands a panpipe. Willow, who'd been kingdom-come olfactory champion three years running and who this year would compete at state, 
having identified with a single sniff the secret ingredients in Mrs. Sigismund Schwarzwalder's Kirschtorte, half a thimble of red currant schnapps and a dash of rosewater, and in Mr. Zwiebel's patented moisturizer that the prunier elder sopped up like bread and couldn't get enough of, suet, could smell the hazelnuts and clove and marzipan of his late kuchen pipe and marveled at how the instrument never grew smaller, though he bit off a nibble with each blow. Naturally, this made Willow a little sad, because it reminded her of her own body. No matter what you did to it, you could slather it with schmaltz, dangle choice cuts beneath the snouts of the most ravenous wolves. It defied reduction, and the more you tried to contain it, the more it erupted in every direction. And Willow found the idea of regenerative food in a world plagued by unending starvation, mouths forever agape and bellies taut with hunger. Everyone in Kingdom Come seemed reasonably well-fed, but she'd read books and knew there were people thinning everywhere, thinning, thinning, as she slept. She found that troubling, one of those paradoxes God bullies mortals with, all the miserable hangdog jobs of the world, the people who bleed and ache and dwindle and swoon and get back up again and offer him their chin. The faithful, those patsies, thought Willow. God is a prowling alley cat, and we're the wounded mice he bats around until the everyday terror of living makes our hearts skit to a stop. Ogden, heartsore, had sobbed when the rabbits disappeared. He, their one true ardent admirer, and since then, it is safe to say, Willow and God had been on the outs. The piper stopped playing when he saw Willow and grinned the thinnest of grins. As though he were fiery daylight and she, a spelunker, just emerged from deep in the belly of a cave, she had to squint to look at him, and then her eyes adjusted to the sight and she could see now his coat rippling around him, teeming with life, undulating, tidal. The lively coat? <laughs> no mere grogworm for this dandified bugler, thought Willow, eyes again narrowed, hands squeezed into fists, trying telepathically to tame the piper and his tumultuous ulster. It was a whirling cosmos under glass, and hung in such a way as to remind Willow of a droplet of water about to fall from the spigot. She saw and could somehow identify all the animals tangled together in the terrarium of the coat. Single-celled wrigglers and chiggers and night snakes and chihuahuan ravens and spotted skunks and bandit sculpins and fat mucket mussels and meadow larks and sicklefin chubs and box elder bugs and silver-haired bats and pocket mice and moon eyes and bobcats and bobolinks and black-tailed prairie dogs and mule deer and mud daubers and piping plovers, of course, and in the middle of it all, looking stunned and loggy as stowaway immigrants who just stepped woozily out of steerage onto foreign shores. Those capacious jackrabbits. It seemed as though the animals were trapped beneath glass. They pawed and pecked and gnawed, but the edge of the universe of the coat would not give, would not even admit to being the edge. And the animals, wild as anyone without a discernible planet beneath her feet would be, searched anxiously for cover. Willow looked into the piper's eyes and could see something writhing there as well, and she feared for the animals, she feared for the children, she feared for dear Augie, her brother, all God's children, and he's come to claim them, she thought, such is not the kingdom of heaven. 
Augie had told Willow that life began with her. Big girl that she was, biggest in kingdom come and beyond, biggest in Kansas, state full of apple maidens. She could give it and take it away, and she wished now she had believed him. But always mistaken for a lumbering boy when she was a tyke and her hair was bobbed at the nape, she wasn't one to readily volunteer for the breeches part. That fraud piper is no match for you, he'd said, godding about like he is. Your movements are sometimes a mystery, and your heart's as big as Kansas, and you'd never let any innocent come to harm. But she hadn't saved the rabbits. Even the surliest of God's creatures deserve affection, pleaded Augie. He thought the rabbits could be reformed with just a little lettuce, a spacious warren, and true love. But she was no redeemer. Those rabbits weren't her invention. Who was she to try to save another when she herself was lost? Just try finding the wee needle of her soul in that husky haystack of flesh. The sound the pipe now emitted was the insomniac humming of those strapping rabbits, and the children sprang too, stiffly like stepped-on rakes, and their bodies quaked and spasmed, jerked and whirled and thrashed about with their eyes still sealed, and Willow thought with a start, Totentants! There'd been an epidemic of dancing in the neighboring towns, and many stories floated among the children of Kingdom Come about the spastic fandango of the soon-to-be-dead, which is why you'd never catch Willow Himmelfarb waltzing in the moonlight or even swinging her hips by the light of the porch. And when Willow saw her parents fox-trotting in the kitchen after supper, she went outside, hid behind the buffalo berry bush, and threw stones at the window until her father came out to investigate— Sure, it was the Spitzbubish twins from next door, up to their usual hijinks. And her mother continued clearing the table, returning the corn relish and rind pickle and buttermilk to the icebox. The humming increased in pitch and fervor, and tiny tulips blossomed on the arms and legs and faces of the children, their skin a field of flowers, beautiful, beautiful, followed by a calyx of proud flesh stemming their spread. Geraniums blooming red as a fresh wound from open mouths, and the children's small bodies perspired to such a degree they looked rain-soaked, and Willow, who could not get her leaden legs to budge an inch, reached out toward Augie. She was a zeppelin cumbered by sandbags, yearning to rise with the rest, and she knew she'd never get off the ground. Augie reeled and grinned, but wouldn't open his eyes, and she could see in the slant of a smile that he was hoping to meet up again with those walloping rabbits who'd met an unseemly end in Kingdom Come, Kansas. And then the piping stopped. Though the children continued to twitch and leap, the piper called out their names. Eva, William, Ludmilla, and Hans, Heinrich, and Albert, and Ulrich, and Alice. As the names were called, children flew up into the air and spiraled toward the moon like full balloons, whose throats are suddenly unthrottled. Looping like a whirligig higher into the ether, and there was only a faint twinkling in the stratosphere. In another county, a man with the telescope would report spying a passel of dying stars in the night sky, all with the faces of startled children. Willow's eyes followed the path of the rising children fallen flesh on the way to becoming again incorruptible heir, God's changelings, she thought, 
He sucks the spirit out of us at birth and leaves behind this residue of flesh, pilfers the marrow and discards the ransacked bone. She looked down at her own fat feet, feet that kept the cobbler occupied. There is no such thing as a human being. Ursula, Josephine, Ermelinda, and Ogden. Willow cried out and saw Augie open his eyes, two doleful blooms amidst the garden of his face, and Willow could see his final thought as a boy. Why ever would God remain on earth, feet so firmly planted in the soil, weighty shrub, while faithful children were rocketing toward heaven? She would not tell her parents how he looked, his mouth widening in terror as his feet left the ground. She would not tell her parents she could see sorrow in the way his eyes flickered and dimmed as he looked at her, eyes that had never known sadness. The piper's coat now churned angrily about him, a cyclone he conducted with his piping from the calm of the eye, and Willow had to shield her face from the stinging rubble he kicked up. Then he blew on his pipe a final note. The rabbits bared their teeth and flattened their ears aerodynamically, braced for velocity, and the piper and his pendant universe disappeared in the dust. A boosh! Willow wobbled on her hammy stems. She found herself nose to nose with a vole as she awoke beneath the rising sun. When she opened her mouth to yawn, the vole tried to run, then sank its feet into the ground. But the wind of her inhalation lifted it into her mouth, and she coughed when it flew down her throat, vague, irritant. The vole, who until now had only ever dreamt of flying, went sailing into the next county. Willow had grown in the night. Actually, she felt as she always had, and so she didn't know if she'd enlarged or the world had shrunk, as the world has a habit of doing, but she figured either way the guilt was hers. She stood up, lifted a nest of speckled eggs out of the cleft of a craggy oak, ate it, and wept. She'd always been a prisoner of her own appetite. She remembered an upsetting story she'd read once of an unwavering paradise, stubborn in its immutability, a land of more than plenty, hemorrhaging milk and honey, oozing with bounty, where trees were heavy year-round with toothsome fruits that didn't know how to rot, a comely land free of the eyesore of humpbacked crones and whiskered spinsters. Free of catastrophic dogs and pugilist gods who blacken your eyes so they can forgive you the sin of being a spirit who has the gall to gussy itself up in flesh of all the harebrained solutions. A land free of fatal children where barnstorming monks take sudden flight, the unfailing sun warming their tonsured noggins, and wheel about on the zephyr of all the unheeded pre-paradise orisons they'd ever uttered, tempted out of the sky only when the abbot paddles the creamy saddle of a chosen maiden, thwap! until it glows so scarlet it can be spotted from the moon, and the monks see the beacon and steer themselves back toward the runway, where their very own bare-bottomed nuns with bums in need of reddening await them, a place where pigs politely roast themselves, 
crackling, stuck with knives and forks, and trot across the table on charred hooves, ready to be carved, where geese ascend and soar near to the sun, self-broiling, then drop from the sky and fly into the gaping mouths of the zaftig and eternally peckish-cooked animals, just so much more relaxed and accommodating than wild ones inclined to snarl and balk at the fate of meat, the destiny of fueling human industry, the labor of meat-making, for example, no matter how generously you stuff the gullets of human beings, the next day there they are again, drooling and famished as if never fed. No magically multiplying fishes or loaves ever enough, cursed with hunger till the day they die, cursed. What a sad bunch of insatiable greedy guts, thought Willow, making the world vanish a mouthful at a time. She herself the worst offender, hungry, hungry, ceaselessly hungry. As Willow wiped the sleep from her eyes, which now loomed in the sky, she imagined like two gluttonous moons, she noticed tiny limbs scattered on the ground, bodies neatly butchered, arms and tongues and legs and eyeballs, fingers and ears, brains and hearts, strewn everywhere, as if to fertilize the clearing, as she picked up an arm and held it between her fingers. It was bloodless and rubbery, with the weediest fingernails like a doll's arm, but it wasn't the doll's arm. She gathered all the parts she could find into the aching marsupium of her mouth, some of them still trembling with reflex, and she cradled her weighted muzzle in her hands. Life begins, life begins, life begins with me, she sang. She stood towering, and the air she noticed was so thin, her head felt like a helium balloon making a break for the heavens, drifting ever farther from her. The hard ground beneath her feet, miles and miles away now, rose up quickly and walloped her in the face. That morning, the town awoke to find itself purged of children. The women who wailed at the birth hour fell silent, and time stumbled forward without anyone noting its passage. The phantom pains that would soon stab them, their fingers, their belly, their heart, an aching for which there was no suitable thunder, would be the weight of their child's face in their hands, an arthritic longing that would quickly gnarl their grasp. Now the sound of stifled sorrow was the music to which people stepped in kingdom come, eyes always searching the night sky or the banks of the river for some sign of Matilda and Ephraim, Ezekiel, and Hannah. There were those who said the children, so suggestible, had surely followed the rabbits into the river, had wanted to see where the river would lead the unwanted. But no bodies were found on the rocks, and dragging the river yielded only the usual detritus. Milk bottles and boxing gloves and bird cages and saxophones and cowboy boots and bear traps and kitchen sinks and rocks. Some folks thought the water had whittled into the winsome visage of the Blessed Virgin. Not that these Lutherans ever paid the Virgin much heed. A virgin who appears in a bowl of wheatina or cries blood on holy days, always making a spectacle of herself, that one. <laughs> Others said perhaps the children had misplaced their innocence. It had gone down gurgling with the last accursed rabbit, and now were fearful of their own ends, so had left to seek out the seductive gloom of the Transylvania they had secretly read about in their closets at night, and the immortalizing incisors of those merrily exsanguinated undead. And there were the devout and hopeful, 
Bo, famished hope always fades when unfed, who were convinced the children had traveled into the howling wilderness and were crusading with wayfaring flagellants, spreading the word between yelps, God, ow, God, ow, God, ow, God. Still others believed the children, who'd all been feverish the night before, contracted a wandering disease that afflicts only the small-footed, and were somewhere on the plains wading barefoot through the prairie grass, walking themselves to death. This theory gathered the most momentum among the townsfolk for a time, because the one memento the children had left behind was their shoes, pairs of which could be found sitting empty throughout the town, in the sorghum field beneath a linden tree in a hayloft, the gazebo, because the children, raised right, hadn't wanted to soil death's immaculate lodgings, and so had politely removed them and left them at the door. Of course, it was alarming to think the portal to eternity could open beneath anyone's feet, even the blameless feet of infants at any moment. But behind this speculation was the unspoken conviction that it was Herr Pfeiffer who was the source of their blue ruin, and that's when joyful noise was officially outlawed in Kansas, even songbirds verboten, and birds remapped their migrations around the flatlands, flying hundreds of miles out of their way, because of course rare is the bird who can abide a soundless sky or a morning awakened by silence. Even crows, those nattering gossips, like a melodious sunrise. Few people recall that the sky over Kingdom Come was once yellow with canaries. After the children disappeared, canary hunters picked them out of the air one by one, and now nothing sings in Kansas. Widow Winkler tried to muzzle her sweet petunia, who was known to whistle all of Valzainen with a little encouragement, and hit her in the cellar. But canary trackers eventually sniffed her out and forced their way into the widow's house, armed with a bow the size of a swallowtail butterfly and a quiver of wee arrows they slung over their thumbs. And between two fingers, the town Fletcher, kingdom come, king of the popinjay, held the arbalist, and with index finger and thumb carefully knocked and shot an arrow whose flights were fletched with the feathers of other slain canaries into Petunia's terrified heart. She was frantically warbling the beginning of The Bird Prophet, trying to forestall her own fate, when the arrow struck her, and the marksman wept when she fell to the ground. Not long after, Widow Winkler herself gave up the ghost, the only thing aside from Petunia and shots she'd been half-heartedly clinging to for years. Petunia lying on the pillow next to her, the tiny arrow lodged in her breast, as though she were little more than a cocktail sausage spindled on a toothpick. When the blood rains began, a week after the children disappeared, kingdom comers knew better than to believe what the scientists were saying, which was that the raindrops had merely collided with iron oxide on the way down, consumptive steel mills having coughed the red dust into the atmosphere, Parrots, however, were wise to the ways of a carnivorous universe, and they knew they were being rained on by their own children, that it was their children's blood that ran down their cheeks, and they put out mason jars in which to collect it. But the next day the jars were always empty, no residue of red rain remaining on the glass. Some people stayed up all night watching the jars, waiting to see the blood vanish, daring it to disappear in their presence, their own blood. 
but blood's a born mesmerist, and it waited for the eyelids to droop with fatigue, then Alakazam, their blink gone, like everything in the world. Most people believe God was not dead, despite the headlines, but even the formerly pious decided all the same to wash their hands of him and to store the rack bones of their souls at his house. After the rain had fallen, the town appearing mauled, people would find a ribbon or a pair of glasses, a sock, a necklace that belonged to one of their children, and the church, long deserted and waiting to be raised by God's notorious pugnacity, was converted into a reliquary, where all these items were stored. The shoes they lined up neatly beneath the pews. Parents now spent their days compiling lists of regrets, page upon page, an entry for each day in the child's life they were sorry they would miss, and they placed their book of documented mourning into the children's shoes, hoping these too might disappear, might fly up and out of the world. Of course, many things vanish from this world without a moment's warning. Prosperity, sanity, umbrellas, love. But not sorrow. Never sorrow. Sorrow always wears thin its welcome. The town resented having a witness to an abduction but no earthly solution to the crime, especially a witness who suspiciously doubled in size, swelling to decidedly unfeminine proportions overnight and it showed Willow its back. People whispered that Willow was a wicked species of cobalt with a dash of ravenous giant in her genes, and that she'd crawled out of a cave when she was born and chosen this town to menace because it boasted more children than most, a fertile town kingdom come. Always suspected that one would be nothing but trouble, they said. Body like that. Some said they knew for a fact she ate children, swallowed them whole like aspirin. Just look at her. No pork cutlet ever made a body grow like that. And if you cut open her stomach, you'd find them all there waiting to be extracted, poor little tumors clutching their cold feet. Other people said they saw her dancing at night under a gibbous moon, skin blue as a plum, trying to persuade it to flaunt its full belly in every quarter tempted to wax and wax like her. Willow grew and grew, big as the Alps, into the sky, beheaded by clouds, ruptured the sky over kingdom come, consorting with birds, and people said she was taking up space that should have been inhabited by children. Sometimes they bit her sturdy ankles, and she let them. No one ever again mentioned those infernal rabbits infested with misery. Willow, no grumbler, took it on her sizable chin like a champ. She'd known what it was like to be the object of the boundless adoration of a small boy, a wondrous thing. It was only fair, she thought, that she should know, too, what it was like to be loathed, to be thought an abominable cannibal demon. Her parents bore the shame of being the only parents whose child survived the fateful piping, and her mother spent her days baking custard pies and cherry cobblers and apple slump, basting briskets, simmering succotash, whipping up griddle cakes for breakfast, canning rhubarb and peaches, all for the other parents who promptly tossed every grub gift she brought them into the trash or left it sitting on the stoop for the fattened foxes and lonesome dogs kicked to the curb. They'd eat nary a morsel prepared by the mother of evil, 
Let them waste to the bone first. At night, while her parents sat in the darkened parlor, Willow lay on her back and tried to stitch the stars together in the image of Augie. As she thought to herself that the sky was as good a guardian as any, certainly more able than humans, who are so fallible, it's always merely a matter of time before they make a mess of all they touch. The universe will one day stop to rest its weary remains and then give up, thought Willow, refuse to be provoked into being again by a big bang or a seamstress bowl with an endless skein of thread or a week of godly labor or a dismembered deity whose parts are itching to be reanimated in the shape of mountains and rivers because humans will have finally and irreversibly swapped love for war, life for death, and bloodied the planet but good, caused it to hemorrhage beyond all stanching. The last sound Kingdom Come ever heard was the sound of the earth shuddering, as Willow Himmelfarb walked into the river, and the murmur of the water as it parted around her legs, which stood stalwart as silos. Then she sat down, and her body dammed the river, and the townspeople slept for the first time since their children had disappeared, slept in their children's beds. There wasn't enough river for Willow to drown herself. There wasn't enough water at all of Kansas for that. But the water rose and rose around her and flooded the land, swallowing prairie and crops and automobiles and barns and threshers and finally houses cleansing the town of its heartache, the parents of the lost children gushing forth out of bedroom windows, bobbing in the escaped river beside coffee pots and overcoats and lampshades and adding machines and pitchforks and sneakers and tubas and yo-yos and incomplete sets of encyclopedias, singing, 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 happily abducted by water. For Alina Kathleen Wilson Hmm. The legend of the Pied Piper of Hamelin is an enduring and well-known tale that has been used as an allegory for everything from the Black Plague to immigration. Kelly's inspired take on the story reinvents it as a wicked satire with tongue firmly in cheek and goes even darker than the original tale. Apocalyptic and cheeky, this is the story to read to children at bedtime. But only if you're babysitting a particularly bratty bunch of children and you don't want them to sleep. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. And with that, short and sweet, I leave you, dear listeners. Have a great week. Enjoy those beverages. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.